0: Good afternoon, it's Monday the 19th of December 2022, a little bit after one o'clock, apologies for that. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today is myself, Brian Gerrish, and I'm delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And We have a strong American team today with uh, both Patrick Henningsen and Mark Anderson. So welcome. David, we're gonna kick straight off with your good self because um, you've been looking at what's been happening in the uh, COVID narrative scene, something which never disappears from life, whether it's in UK or overseas. Uh, what, have you been, what have you been discovering?
1: Well, there's been much happening. I mean, well over a year, we, we explained how the government narrative had collapsed and it's now slowly being noticed. Uh, We have the very gallant Andrew uh, Bridgen speaking in an almost deserted House of Commons, but although few people were brave enough to actually turn up and listen to him uh, or debate him, he did say some very important things. We have one example in the following clip.
0: Can you hear me okay, David? Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry to say that we don't seem to have that that, uh, particular clip. So we're, we're, <laughs> let's move on through. We're obviously going to have a day of gremlins today, which is usually a good sign well, for the, what, for the what, UK column because it means we're hitting the target. So t- tell us what about I, Andrew Bridgen. What
1: I, yeah, so what Andrew Bridgen was saying is, that, there is um, that he had received information that information on vaccine harms, specifically blood clots, was being concealed and it was being concealed using non-disclosure agreements by a top researcher in the field who works for the British Hearts Foundation, amongst others, and that this was uh, a matter which should be reflected on with great shame and should be corrected. Um, We'll try the next clip. Uh, Now, this is a reaction to this uh, by uh, a a doctor, Dr. Ahmed Malik, who's spoken out bravely for some time on these matters, speaking about the implication of having information on vaccine harms concealed by those who are meant to be protecting uh, the public from harm. To millions, if
2: not billions of people around the world without proper long-term safety data. And over the last couple of years, we've seen increasing number of people um, with injuries, with adverse side effects, an increasing number of cancers, neuro- neurological conditions, heart disease, clots... And now this bombshell revelation by the MP Andrew Bridgens, talking about covering up data about the safety of the mRNA vaccines, like Dr. Asim has said, we really need to suspend the rollout of these vaccines. We need to stop and do a proper investigation
1: to find out what is going on. So, having had the actual narrative collapse over a year ago, we're now seeing. In the mainstream, we're seeing professional people come forward and say, we're we're not buying this. We need to stop because the basic principles first do no harm. And those uh, those clinicians who hold to that basic first principle of care uh, are finding the courage to speak out. And they're no longer being intimidated into silence. That's not working. Um, So against that background, uh, the narrative that comes from the drug companies is, well, interesting. We have an example here of their advertising. Um, and I, I would point out this is not a parody. Uh, this is not satire. This is actually real. This is what Pfizer thinks is a good way of selling their products.
3: Open. It's a beautiful word. Neighbourhoods, open. Businesses, Open. Fields, open. Who doesn't love open? Offices, homes, stages, possibilities. Your world, open. And you can help keep it that way.
1: See, you can help keep it that way if you get vaccinated. So uh, that looked to me like a threat Right? You can help keep it that way. If you want to have an open society, get the jab. If you don't get the jab, mm, the openness will go away. That's what they're saying. It's, an, it's very close to being an overt threat, certainly a covert threat. But it's, it's, it's risible. People are seeing through this. This isn't working. So one of the ways of seeing through it, people use humour. And humour, we speak about this often in the column. Humour's our friend. Humour's our weapon. Humour's our safety valve. We have a couple of examples here. A little clip from a song. Please look up the whole thing on YouTube. The 12 Lies of Covid.
0: For the 12th lie of COVID, the global to me. Destruction of my
2: country, 11 boosters needed. You'll like owning nothing. Carnivores are dirty, truckers are so scary, collie is so the seamless. No, I've For it. and
0: quarantine. Last we'll walk the bud, walk a granny, two weeks to pluck, and a play from a
2: laboratory. Hey.
1: So when you're laughing, you're winning. The people who are seeing through the 12 lies of COVID are winning. And that's an example. We have another one here, short clip, because the original has many words that we don't put on the UK column news, but it's extremely funny. It's from Clown Medical. Uh, Again, uh, we might look at this in extra time, but uh, please look out the full version on Twitter and social media. It's uh, rather wonderful. Made a fortune from jabbing livestock i've had a seizure i'm too hard attacks the jabs are useless they're safe and so effective probably i'm so glad i'm vaxxed to the max <sighs> and there's much more like that in that song so you see people are are seeing through it they're laughing at it and they're also getting together they're collecting themselves together and they're fighting in other ways and we've got one example here this is from health uh, healthcare Scott website the scottish covid19 inquiry now this has had major problems everyone's resigned it's traditional in scottish inquiries that this is what happens and we don't know why that's also traditional in scottish inquiries but it's been reformed um, and there was an application by the scottish vaccine injury group to be a core participant this has been accepted so in accepting this that this inquiry is recognizing that vaccine injuries are a major issue and that's actually new because the the official line from the scottish government is that it's, it's safe and effective the the, the harmful effects are extraordinarily rare and we don't really need to worry about it and it's all good well we have we've got as core participants uh one of many Uh, the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group. So anyone out there who who wants to be part of that uh, should contact the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group via Facebook is the easiest way to get in touch with them Um, uh, if you have information that you think should go to the Scottish COVID-19 Inquiry. And again, how how is the opposition pushing back? Well, we have here um, the Naked Emperor's newsletter, always excellent. Uh, Naked Emperor's been speaking on this for well, years now, uh, the chief executive of AstraZeneca gets knighted uh, and says that vaccine concerns were overblown. Um, so we're using the system to to provide, in this case, gongs to people who uh, are, are pushing the narrative. Um, at the beginning of March, various EU countries started suspending the use of the vaccine because of blood clots. However, they said no causal links was vaccination hadn't uh, been shown, uh, and full facts were on the case to tell us that the vaccine hadn't been banned, just temporarily stopped for a review. But reading the published material is available; it's obvious to everyone why they'd stopped using it. The Naked emperor continues. Let's for one moment pretend that COVID was fairly lethal to young people, and the AstraZeneca vaccine did a great job at saving all those young people who would have died. Uh, but as Mr. Sordiott says, uh, with millions of people getting vaccinated, some will die. Even if that was the case, now is not the time to be knighting the CEO. Now is not the time, because on the same day Mr. soriot was getting knighted, another coroner recorded the death of a 27-year-old man due to his AstraZeneca vaccine. Quote from the coroner, Jack uh, Last, age 27, from Stow Market, was vaccinated on the 30th of March 2021 a week later was admitted to hospital after experiencing headaches and sickness. A scan on 10th of April revealed cerebral uh, uh, venous sinuous thrombosis and he died 10 days later. Senior coroner Nigel Parsley recorded a narrative conclusion at Suffolk coroner's court. He said, quote, Jack last died of a blood clot to the brain, caused as a direct result of the body's reaction to the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccination, which he had received on March 30, 2021. Um, The hearing was told that Mr Lass was otherwise a fit and well man. So here you see um, everything they do to try and boost the narrative that the the COVID-19 vaccine is essential is either being viewed with derision or is just clashing so horribly with the reality of the situation that it's no longer credible.
0: David, thank you very much for that. Uh, I think this says to me that people have got to keep going whatever way they're challenging the formal agenda whether they're a professional and they're of the quality they can produce scientific or medical papers to challenge that of course is the thing they should be doing. But of course humour is also particularly good and people are now showing that they have no faith at all in the government. Uh, particularly in its ability to look after our health. So we'll take that as a positive step and encourage people to g- keep going. Well, let's turn our attention to Ukraine, which, of course, is being used as the uh, the sponge, really, to soak up everybody's attention. Everything is about Ukraine, uh, but things are clearly not going right. So let's have a look at the BBC. Uh, this is their sneering um headline page on Ukraine. And of course, uh, they've made very big of the fact that the Russians have decided to send some musicians to entertain the troops. It's coming up to Christmas. This is a very normal thing for any uh, military force to do. But for the BBC, this is an opportunity for a further sneer at anything to do with Russia. Um, But quite an interesting mix of articles, because it's clear that the agenda is beginning to uh, stumble as things don't go right in Ukraine. And of course, what's been happening again over the last few days is more uh, uh, another, sorry, great um, Russia missile attack on Ukrainian infrastructure and the Ukrainians now freely admitting that over 50% of their electrical supply systems are down and also water is now becoming a problem as Russia attacks the infrastructure. But let's remember, of course, that uh, Russia is not alone in this tactic. It's been used many times, particularly by the US uh, and UK and the NATO allies, be it in Iraq um, or or in wars inside Europe itself, uh, Serbia being one of them and uh, there's nothing special but clearly these attacks are doing damage but it's surprising because a little while ago uh, we were being told by a great many people across western media that uh, russia was running out of missiles let's have a look at this brief clip
1: that the russians are running out of missiles what's your take yes I um, mean that's been said for a little while partly because they're using missiles improvised for other purposes. We've seen missiles slamming into buildings, which are um, sea-based missiles, they're anti-ship missiles, carrying sort of an eight-ton warhead, uh, sorry, an eight-ton missile with a, a half-a-ton warhead intended for against aircraft carriers. We've seen um, surface-to-air missiles, meant to be anti-aircraft missiles, used against ground targets. And the Russians don't have that many it seems caliber um, tomahawk like like, uh, cruise missiles ship-launched cruise missiles which they are using they used a few yesterday but if they had more I'm sure they would use more and the problem is that they seem to be running out of the components uh, that they need for these things because they've been under sanction for quite a long time.
0: Well there we are that was going back to October I have to say I think that particular gentleman from King's College Mr Clark is talking was talking utter nonsense and of course now we can see the reality, nothing he's talked about has come true. Uh, But perhaps we can bring Patrick Henningsen on screen. Um, Patrick, what are your thoughts about that little clip?
4: It just echoes everything we see uh, every time, the think tanks, uh, the mainstream media, the experts, the military experts. And to me, it's quite staggering. It's, and in fact, it's a bit sad uh, that you see ex-generals, ex-brigadier generals, lieutenant colonels, uh, rear admirals in some cases coming on and giving a depiction of the conflict in Ukraine that is so divorced from reality and it, you can only draw one conclusion from that and that's that they're being marinated in their own propaganda. They're not reading any Russian reports, they're not reading the German press or the Hungarian press or anything. They're just basically listening to UK and US media reportage. And if you do that, you're going to get a very distorted, if not uh, completely uh, nonsensical view of the conflict. Um, So you're not going to have any sense of scale or who's doing well and who's not doing well. And so, again, marinated in your own propaganda, trapped in, bunkered up in your own echo chamber. And I might add that the, the losses on the Ukrainian side for hardware is absolutely staggering. Uh, in the last couple of months. And to say that Russia doesn't have caliber missiles, Russia has not deployed even a small percentage of the missiles that they have, nor have they even really deployed their air force uh, to run any sorties, not even to the level that they're using it in Syria. And that's a a low-intensity conflict uh, compared to this Ukrainian conflict. And I might add, Brian, on your previous point, that Ukraine has attacked Russian infrastructure already, oil refineries in Belgorod, or the Kerch the Strait Bridge or other uh, targets inside Russia. So that's effectively, you know, the gloves are off at that point. And so Russia has always responded in kind and always in, in response to those types of incidents uh, or things similar to that. So they're sending the message to the Ukraine, to the U.S. and NATO. If you're going to up the ante, then we're going to up the ante. So it's like for like. It's reciprocal.
0: Okay, Patrick, thank you very much for that. Well, let's have a look at the harsh reality of the ammunition situation, and it's not looking particularly good for the West. Um, So we can just bring in a number of different articles here, all talking about the US, the uh, Europe, uh, the UK running out of weapons. We simply do not have any more weapons to be given to Ukraine. Uh, And this is because of the... uh, huge uh, quantity of uh, ammunition and weapon systems that Ukraine has used up. Um, But this is the uh, real lesson that, of course, Ukraine is now desperately short of munitions. Uh, The Ukrainian officials are saying so on a fairly regular basis. Uh, They are running out and the West is not in a position to uh, re-equip them. So this uh, war is only going to go in one direction from here on. Um, Let's have a look at some of the other comments here. So we've got the Guardian, Russia-Ukraine war at a glance, what we know on day 299 of the invasion, Britain to announce major new artillery package for Ukraine. Ukraine says Russian shelling targeting Kyrton as its forces continue to hold on to Bakhmut. Well this is the meat of the article which says that uh, Rishi Sunak, has promised hundreds of thousands of rounds of artillery ammunition next year under a 250 million contract that uh, he claims will ensure a, a constant flow of critical artillery ammunition to Ukraine throughout 2023. This is a very interesting claim. It's too little, much too late, but of course, we also know that the UK cannot provide its own military with enough ammunition. And so how they're going to supply Ukraine is going to be very interesting. But of course, Ukraine wants more. So um, here we have uh, Zelensky saying that he needs a reliable air defense shield to make Russian terror impossible. Uh, These were some of his comments on Monday. There'll be a meeting of the leaders of the northern European countries, Great Britain, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Iceland, the Netherlands, Sweden and Norway. These are our extremely important friends, important partners and effective assistants in our defence. Therefore, we're preparing several new proposals from Ukraine on how to strengthen all of us, all of the countries of Europe. So Zelensky is absolutely um, alongside us. We can trust him to defend us or maybe not, but he goes on. Let's have a look at the uh, Freedom article here. Uh, Reliable air defence shields will make Russian missile terror impossible. This will mean security for millions of people, um, was what he had to say. And uh, why has all this come up? Uh, Well, it's come up because, of course, the damage to the Ukrainian, uh, particularly electrical, supply systems is now so great that effectively there's breakdown in the country. But this article, of course, is propaganda in itself. It begins off begins by saying that uh, the plan is to restore electricity to almost six million Ukrainians, as if this was a minor attack which has been brushed off. But if you read the second paragraph, you'll see there's uh, city area after city area listed. And of course, uh, there is no power in those regions. So here we are, dear partners, find an opportunity to give Ukraine reliable protection for our sky a reliable air defense shield, you can do it. You can provide protection to our people, 100% protection from these terrorist Russian strikes. When this happens, the main form of Russia terror, missile terror, will become simply impossible. And this will mean safety for Ukrainians, safety for millions of people, and a strategic restructuring of the entire military situation. The fewer opportunities Russia has for terror, the more opportunities we will have to restore and ensure peace. Well of course this is complete nonsense because uh, Zelensky still not realise that his allies cannot provide these systems and even with Patriot even the BBC now is getting particularly vague uh, because although here's the great missile system in the text what does the uh, BBC have to say precisely what overall effect Patriot systems will have is difficult to say. Well, the comment to that is really too right because we believe that there are only going to be two systems supplied. And of course, they're not able to defend the vast areas of Ukraine against those missile attacks. But meanwhile, the propaganda from Ukraine continues. Um, So we've got freedom again here. Uh, Ukrainian defense forces do not target residential areas. Intelligence official on dinette's uh, shelling this is the comments Uh, but if we look at what's coming out on social media and this is accurate reporting uh, this particular one is talking about attacks on stadiums in the donbass arena in the last two hours so that was uh, virtually 24 hours ago now and uh, the uh, poster had pointed out this was on the day of the final of the world cup 2022 And uh, if we have a look at people, journalists who've actually visited the area, this just happens to be Patrick Lancaster, but there are others, they're absolutely talking about Ukrainian attacks on civilian infrastructure. But what does the Ukrainian ministry say? We can assure you that Ukrainian defense forces, of course, do not fire and do not target residential areas. Well, this is uh, pure lies and of course uh, this is the material that is pumped out on a daily basis by the bbc if we go deeper and uk column over the last few days has been uh, starting to do this we can see a large number of organizations that have been working over many years to restructure ukrainian politics and society and uh, we just continue this theme today with this uh, little look at elections let's just watch this video clip.
3: Welcome, I'm Antonino Antosha, and you are watching Head to Head with UATV. Ukrainian and international election observers have announced that the July 21st parliamentary election in Ukraine was held in a fair and competitive manner. According to the preliminary results, five political parties were elected to the 9th convocation of the Verkhovna Rada, in particular, Servant of the People Party, the opposition platform For Life, European Solidarity, Batkivshina, and Holos. To talk more about the assessment of these elections, we're joined in the studio today by Dr. Dr. Olga Ono. She is an associate professor in politics at the University of Manchester an associate member of Nufeld College. Hello and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've been watching the process of the parliamentary elections in Ukraine very closely. What are your impressions? Well, I think most importantly it's we need to stress this was a free and fair election okay. uh, amongst one of the most free and fair that we've seen in Ukraine Mm -hmm. to date, so I think that's important. And this is a dramatic shift in parliamentary politics in Mm -hmm. Ukraine. We've never seen something like this. We've never seen a party get an outright majority in this way. We'll talk about this later. Yeah, so these are these are the most important things, I think, that things are changing. Things are changing dramatically and uh, some of the some of the politicians may have not learned their lesson from the presidential elections, it seems, Um, and they paid the price. Could you dwell a little bit more on that? Well, I mean, <laughs> there was an obvious dramatic failure of many presidential campaigns um, a few months back, right? Losing with a 73% uh, in, in the case of the former president, Petro Poroshenko, it's dramatic. And clearly the electorate was saying, we are unhappy with the way you propose. Run politics and what you propose to us in campaigns. Mm-hmm. You're not listening to us. And that was this. So a lot of us that observe uh, politics in Ukraine. We were looking at this moment and trying to explain to the the general public in the West certainly it wasn't necessarily about just Zelensky and how great he was but it was also about how dissatisfied people were with what um, mainly it was. Right, exactly and then it seems that no lessons were learned right the campaigns did not turn to the issues that the median voter in ukraine cares about mm. the campaigns did not focus on bread and butter issues for the most part they did not focus on the fact that in the last five years many people have become
0: poorer. so an interesting uh, little presentation by that lady and i wonder whether our audience picked up on some of the points that i uh, saw because supposedly she's talking about the elections but actually once she is uh, given free reign, she is talking about the campaigns which actually changed the results of the elections. So who is this lady and why should we pay attention to people like her? Well, let's bring her on screen, Olga Onuch, and um, you can find details here on her website. Uh, She said she grew up in the art communities of Warsaw, Kiev and Toronto and New York, so in my book she's an internationalist. But if we look in and uh, look a little bit detail uh, in a little bit more detail, uh, she's happy to say that uh, she spent much of her teens uh, working with the Open Society Foundation Soros Centers for Contemporary Art. And if you get deeper into her own words and encourage people to go and do this, uh, you will start to see that what this lady actually is an, is an activist. And um, I have put the comment there, is she a political commentator or is she actually a change agent? And I'm going to suggest that if she's writing books, uh, the Zelensky effect, for example, uh, what we've got is a deep state change agent. Um, David, uh, very quickly, because I'm watching the time closely today, uh, these people are one extremely dangerous, but it's clear that they're embedded throughout Ukraine at the moment.
1: Throughout the Ukraine, throughout the entire Western world, right? because this lady's in a university in Manchester, will come to change agents in Scotland later in the programme. They're everywhere. And in fact, we've now got the Scottish government openly telling Scottish businesses that they must become change agents themselves uh, as they roll out the cultural Marxist agenda. Um, so it is everywhere. Uh, it's they've had the long march through the institutions and now everywhere you look every stone you lift there's a little bug running away and it's more of this uh, woke ideology and it's uh, it has a certain belief system it's religious in its nature and it's very very toxic
0: yes well of course change agents come in many different shapes and sizes but let's bring possibly another one on screen and have a look at uh Uh, what uh, Archbishop of Canterbury Welby has been up to.
2: I think the other thing that struck me was uh, seeing the site of the mass grave at Butcher, Mm -hmm. the photos of what had been done to the people there, um, the rape, the massacres, the torture by the occupying Russian forces. And um, hearing from those who are studying uh, the the ideology, which is driving these attacks, that it is an ideology of conquest. And it wants Ukraine, less worried about the people, but very worried about getting historic Ukraine back and realizing how important it is that we support the the Ukrainian effort, because essentially, they are um if if they go it's not going to stop from their ideology
0: so david in my book he wants to send uh, more weapons and munitions uh, to ukraine he's certainly not talking about uh, providing medical supplies he doesn't mention the word peace at all uh, but earlier in that clip and encourage people to watch it in my book he is mocking uh, the crucifixion but uh, should we trust this man, do you think?
1: Well, he's not engaging in critical thinking, right? I mean, the, 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 the booker Butcher, uh, Butcher massacre is, uh, is, is kind of the Ukraine crisis, the Ukraine war in, in, in microcosm. Who did it? Now, he's, he's repeating and completely uncritically accepting the Western and Ukrainian narrative. It was the Russians. The information that we've seen... Um, the timing, the nature of the bodies, the condition of the bodies, all suggest that this happened after the Russians left. Partly the fact that all the bodies were carrying um, bags that were handed out by the Russians and they were therefore could be seen as people who were cooperating, collaborating with the Russians. Why would the Russians kill them? It, it, it was a very, very odd situation. At the very least there is uncertainty as to who carried out this atrocity. There is a very good case to say, well, it was the Ukrainians. Now, if it was the Ukrainians, that presumably completely reverses everything he just said and and the policy he's advocating for the entire Western world as well. So you think he would be careful to get it right. You think he would be more responsible. But no, he just accepts the talking point and on he goes.
0: And on he goes. Well, let's just remind the audience of the sorts of friends that uh, Justin Welby keeps. And this was a picture uh, from the Ecumenical News a little while ago. This was 2015 and there he is mixing it with the internationalist bankers. Um, So I think this uh, man's agenda has got to be looked at very carefully. Now um, on the other side of the pond, uh, we've got lots of money available for warfare. mark welcome to today's news edition and it appears that the house has passed an 858 billion defense bill
5: yeah great to be back here on uk Column. hello patrick um this is a carryover item from last week and the house did indeed pass this national defense authorization act and so far it appears that the vaccine exemption for soldiers Uh, The COVID vax exemption is still in place, even as the Senate, I just learned this morning, uh, four days ago, the Senate, 83 to 11, also passed this National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2023, and that was December 15th that they voted on that. And uh, I did a little reading up real quick this morning. Now, what you're showing on the screen there is the basics of the House side of this. The legislation negotiated by Democrats and Republicans or Republicrats and Demoplicans, you might say, in both chambers of Congress would grant a 4.6 percent pay raise to military personnel. OK, that's all good and well. Increase the Pentagon's budget by 45 billion over President Biden's request. So you've got ionospheric spending being even higher than Biden wanted it to be, providing 800 million in new security aid to Ukraine and billions to Taiwan. It includes changes sought by lawmakers to the military's policy for sexual assault cases, et cetera, et cetera. The vote in the House was 350 to 80, with a substantial number of Republicans joining Democrats and all that. The bill delivers twin repudiations to Mr. Biden's policies, increasing the defense budget 8% overall when he has pressed to keep it nearly flat and moving to reverse a vaccine mandate that his top officials have fought to retain. And with Republicans taking control of the House in January, it essentially locked in the kind of large increases in military budgets that Mr. Biden and many Democrats had hoped uh, to end while they had unified control of government. So I believe, to the best of my knowledge, the vaccine uh, mandate against the soldiers has been dropped and now they're free of that uh, sort of domicile hanging over their head. But uh, a real quick thing to add on the Senate, Uh, voting on this same bill, Uh, this uh, uh, NDAA, as it's known for short, this is a major bill voted on by Congress every fiscal year. It it includes confronting Russia and supporting Ukraine by authorizing increased funding for the European Deterrence Initiative and the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. Both of those are in the NDAA, and it's headed to Biden's desk now. And get this, strengthening and securing the national supply chain and supporting the, de- the defense industrial base, including temporary authorizations to waive certain restrictions related to contracts for munitions support to Ukraine and to increase the Defense Department's stock of official uh, of critical munitions. So you were talking a little bit ago about munitions for Ukraine, and that's embedded right in the NDAA. So that's certainly notable now that
0: the Senate has voted on it. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for that. Just to make that clear to the audience that uh, this money is going to be for setting up the production of uh, uh, munitions ammunition for Ukraine because the US is out of stocks. So this is big money in order to set up new industrial capacity to try and keep the war going. We, we'll see what actually happens over the winter months. Well, let's uh, bring Patrick Henningson back in with us again. You're going to go back in history a little bit, Patrick. But uh, is uh, the truth closer to the surface in 2022, or was it better in times gone by?
4: Well, it's it, on the surface. This looks like a major announcement, as we can see here revealed. Well, our headline here: the CIA's direct. Uh, involvement in the assassination of JFK. Now, the Biden administration has announced it's releasing 3,000 previously classified documents uh, that are part of the review, which the the federal government did uh, from 1963 forward of the assassination of JFK. Okay, And so the idea is that they're trying to show transparency on this but unfortunately, not quite, they're not going to be released. Uh, they need The government needs about five months to uh, thumb through all these documents and uh, redact anything, and who knows what else, remove things, how would we know? Um, anything that might uh, bring the institutions uh, that are under the microscope here, namely the CIA and the FBI, that might uh, hurt their reputation or their legacy or something like this. That's, that's the general idea. So, it's not really transparent, uh, so this, this isn't, isn't going to be – I don't think it's going to be. There might be a few interesting things in there, but by the time they get done with this, um, there might not be much there. Now, uh, uh, Tucker Carlson from Fox News uh, spoke to a source who handled these documents and has a confirmation. He asked point blank to the source, uh, do, uh, "Do is there any evidence in here that implicates the CIA – Uh, In the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And the source said yes. So the source has handled the unredacted documents, is familiar with all of them, and has confirmed that that information does exist. Okay, so that's interesting. And it brings up a lot of problems and questions, a lot of pain, a lot of national pain. This was a, a seminal event. Uh, changed the course of history uh, for the United States politically, and arguably some might say the world, uh, perhaps. But uh, what's interesting is it's also been noted that uh, uh, the former CIA director, who was CIA director for a short time, Mike Pompeo, went on to be Secretary of State under the Trump administration, that he uh, was instrumental uh, basically in mothballing some of this. So this is the Washington Post. I'm going back to uh, 2017 here, a quote here by Roger Stone, a very good White House source, not the President, told me that the CIA specifically, Director Mike Pompeo at the time, had been lobbying the President furiously not to release these documents. Why? Because I believe they show that Oswald was trained, nurtured, and put in place by the CIA, among other things probably. But what's, what's important to note here is that uh, Mike Pompeo was only director of the CIA for a very short time, uh, a matter of f- a few months, really, um, some, uh, maybe a year or less than a year. But uh, for doing things like this, the payback is always very good in, in Washington with the deep state. Mike Pompeo is jockeying for position to run for president in 2024, not to win, mind you, but to increase his brand cachet so that he would be the sort of fate accompli choice for vice president for either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. No matter who wins on the Republican side, you would have a classic deep state, you know, steady hand on the tiller for the deep state a la Dick Cheney uh, and people like this. Joe Biden himself played that role for Barack Obama, was put in charge of the Ukraine portfolio, doing all the dirty work behind the scenes. Mike Pompeo, a classic deep state operative, would play that role. So I think that's something just to keep an eye on. It's To me, it's almost a certainty he would be the vice presidential selection for any Republican nominee. So that's something to keep an eye on going forward.
0: Okay, thank, thank you for that, uh, Patrick. It's something else which makes me say that we shouldn't easily trust our governments or indeed the deep state. Um, let's move on to the subject of Twitter, where we've got more state involvement.
4: Well, some of you might be familiar with the uh, the recent release, the Twitter files. This has exposed uh, a massive degree of censorship collusion between the government and the Silicon Valley giant, this major social media platform. Uh, Not only just censorship, deplatforming. So the government is. blacklists, uh, lowering people's reach and things like that, dashboards that were accessible, uh, perhaps by government officials as well. But definitely uh, t- uh, at Twitter, this has now been exposed. So what, what, are, the, what are the results of this? This is a, a huge, um, a bad, it's a bad place for the federal government. Um, because uh, this private company argument no longer stands up. Because if the federal government is working with any big tech firms to do any censorship, deplatforming on a political basis, and, or part on a partisan level, or anything like that, then they can no longer say we're a private company. We can limit speech on our platforms. Uh, and it then becomes they're a partner with the government uh, to deny First Amendment rights to U.S. citizens. So that this is the basis for a number of very important federal cases that are in motion right now. Um, that have reached uh, federal appeals courts in some cases and there will be results from this. So here's Jack Dorsey. This is the CEO of Twitter here, the aloof uh, Jack Dorsey. And he posted this on Review. This is a newsletter uh, like Substack that uh, Twitter bought. Elon is going to be Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter. He's going to roll this this newsletter service back. So this is one of, probably one of the last posts you'll see from Jack Dorsey. And this is his big mea culpa. He was the CEO, major equity holder in the company, uh, CEO, and he's the founder of the, uh, of the company. So it's, it's his baby, basically. And he's basically saying how he regrets things were really bad and they shouldn't have done all this censorship. And I think it's very telling, his comments. And you can maybe derive uh, some insight into the mind of Jack and the Silicon Valley in general. He said, I'll start with the principles I've come to believe based on everything I've learned, experienced through the past, uh, my past actions at Twitter as co-founder and lead. Oh, number one, social media must be resilient to corporate and government control. Number two, only the, orig- or the original author may remove content they produce. Number three, moderation is best implemented by algorithmic choice. And he says in, in, in summation of the Twitter when I let it and the Twitter of today do not meet any of these principles. This is my fault alone. So he's he's falling on his digital sword here uh, and he goes on to say this is my fault alone as I completely gave up pushing for them when an activist entered our stock in uh, two th- uh, thousand and twenty. So, and he goes on to say how there's problems with the ownership structure, and basically political forces moved in. He wasn't able to to tamp them down. Not only that, their staff is just riddled with political activists on the content moderation level, and even at the the highest executive levels, pretty much across the board. He's saying here, of course, governments want to shape and control the public conversation. We'll use every method at their disposal to do so, including. The media. So this is an interesting mea culpa, and it begs the question, you know, how come Jack didn't stand up for any of these principles that he has while he was at Twitter? He could have went public, he could have protested, he could have resigned as CEO, could have done a number of things to raise this issue up, and he didn't. So and, and again, this is sort of a hollow mea culpa, I think. And so it's it. this is one of the worst, uh, most egregious scandals regarding speech, really, in uh, the history of The Internet, you could say, but it's not getting any coverage in any mainstream media, uh, except for maybe Fox and some right wing uh, conservative publications in America. The rest of the mainstream media is completely out of out of it. So it it raises a number of other important questions here. One of them is, why were there so many ex-federal agencies and spies working inside Twitter? at the heads of departments, and these revelations have been coming out for months, and I'll po- uh, re- uh, point to this excellent report here by Alan McLeod at uh, Mint Press News. This was re-syndicated here at Real News Network, uh, and th- this kind of, if you scroll through this article here, uh, Twitter is hiring an alarming number of FBI uh, agents, and if you just, if you, we'll just let this thing run, and you, you'll be able to see this chronicles um, all of these, uh, spooks and people from the NSA, uh, the cyber command division, uh, heads of, uh, people from all these, the, the DNI basically it's, it's an incredible list of people and they're all over the place and, in heads of departments and so forth. So this is a really kind of disturbing development now that we learning this, although we suspected this and I'll show you some British, uh, intelligence, uh, Uh, People who were also employed by Twitter in key positions and so this raises a lot of important questions And so if we move on the main important question here that will that that becomes a problem is it's now known that former Twitter employees This has uh, been admitted on multiple venues already now that employees and admins had extensive access to user data Including DMS direct messages now think about this for a minute journalists are communicating with each other political campaign uh, operatives during elections are communicating with each other activists are communicating with each other if you want to find out who knows what and what people know and who's going to do what next sources are talking to we're talking to journalists under the assumption that they thought that this was a private messaging service little did they know that uh, there was a widespread rampant use of people reading dms and even within twitter they said they can't confirm who was reading what but they know that everybody uh at these at this department level had the ability to do that so if you think about all these departments staffed by ex uh or former spooks or current spooks uh, former government uh agents uh, from the fbi head of legal was fbi involved in creating the RussiaGate narrative his name was jim baker so you can see this was a total cesspool here and so so this is a a, a problem and so think about this that what twitter was an intelligence gathering operation of the highest order and not just for us agents or us spooks but there are other uh, people from other countries intelligence services also embedded in the in that company and we don't even know the full extent of this especially on the on the regional level if twitter has offices in other countries i'll show you one example of that uh in a minute but this is when twitter kind of became it really came into his own uh as a kind of tool the intelligence services this is in 2009 this was the green revolution or the green movement uh in iran uh, this was to do with the presidential election. And this is when the, is when people in the West and the media and government got very excited about the potential for Twitter to mobilize activists and to potentially uh, be a tool for regime change. And this is in the run-up to the Arab Spring. But this was, was regarded really as one of the biggest successes um, in using Twitter. Uh, to potentially overthrow or uh, start a revolution, uh, a popular uprising to oppose uh, an election, in this case, uh, uh, President Ahmadinejad. So that's that's when this became uh, a real, I think, focus for the intelligence services. But look at this. I mean, this is just recently, former Twitter employee sentenced to three years in prison for spying for Saudi Arabia. So this particular gentleman here was a dual U.S.-Lebanese citizen and uh, helped the overseas media partnership for Twitter in the Middle East, North Africa was part of a scheme to acquire personal information of users. Take a wild guess what that might be? What activists, political opposition, uh, prisoners of conscience, family members of people who are being persecuted in Saudi Arabia? You name it. Uh, the Jamal Khashoggi incident as well. Think about all the journalists, and you it, really a government agent could find out who who is on whose side, who really thinks what what their private views are on the DMs, for instance. But uh, here, including phone numbers, birth birthdates as, as a Saudi agent uh, of Saudi Arabia. So that's a real case of espionage there. The Justice Department in the U.S. said it believes that uh, another former Twitter employee accused of uh, accessing user accounts and another man accused of helping Saudi Arabian government with this scheme have fled to Saudi Arabia to evade American authorities. So they don't even they can't even catch everybody who is involved. So, I mean, this is so widespread. I won't even talk about Israeli intelligence because if you probably knew the half of that, why wouldn't Israel want to be uh, heavily involved uh, on that level, at least to keep an eye on things? So, But it brings us to the UK, and this is Wired Magazine, mainstream coverage here. This was from 2019. Twitter needs to start exposing the UK's murky online propaganda, both Twitter and Facebook. Are getting better at disclosing inauthentic accounts and state backed disinformation campaigns. That's 2019. And here's one of those the 77th Brigade embedded in Twitter at HQ. Look at this Twitter executive for the Middle East, the editor of Middle Eastern content for Twitter. Uh, is an Army PSYOPs officer from 77th Brigade. Good article here by Ian Cobain. Again, we're turning the clock back a couple of years, but it's worth looking at this. Senior Twitter executive with editorial responsibility for Middle East content, also a part-time officer for the 77th Brigade. Uh, This is a psychological warfare unit here. So Gordon McMillan, this is reported widely at the time, who joined the social media company, the UK's office, six years ago from the time this article went to print a couple of years ago, but uh, has for several years served in the 77th Brigade, a unit formed in 2015 for non-lethal ways of waging war. So that's going on inside Twitter. So give, again, gives you an idea of the content you're seeing coming in the feeds, the news, the breaking stories. What is is it exactly? Now, the 77th Brigade admits using social media platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as well as podcasts, data analysis, audience research conducted by what Nick Carter, General Nick Carter says is information warfare. So is this information warfare against a foreign enemy or is this being conducted uh, partly against the populace in the West because that's part of the information warfare game? Let's take a look at the man. This is Gordon McMillan. I think this was a screenshot uh, Ian Cobain provided at the time from his uh, LinkedIn uh, profile here. And so what exactly McMillan is doing with the unit is very difficult to determine. However, he declined to answer any questions about his role as Twitter and the UK ministry, his role with the uh, Ministry of Defense. So that's, um, that's interesting to say the least, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. So Elon Musk coming in and firing lots of people and maybe changing the rules on censorship uh, and deplatforming and shadow banning and all of this. This is a major deal. Twitter was a playground. They literally had the most incredible tool for intelligence gathering you could possibly imagine. So this is major, uh, I think. So we'll see how it goes, though. Uh, It's very possible the deep state could recolonize that company um, even after Musk has bought it here. So just on the on the Twitter front, a uh, major thing to look out for here. They're now banning outgoing links to Facebook, Instagram and other rivals. Now this is really controversial. So a lot of people are trying to uh, speculate as to why uh, Elon Musk has dropped this new set of rules in. And so Facebook, Mastodon, this is a competitor for Twitter. So th- there's a lot of reasons why this could be happening. Um, one of them is, uh, well, we'll talk about the doxing controversy in a second, but there's a lot of people who will be fleeing Twitter because of the new ownership, because th- Musk is being characterized in the U.S. press as a far right, uh, and hate speech is uh, you know promulgating like crazy on Twitter. So I think in a way, he's, he's, A, he's building a moat. He, you could say he's building a moat. Other thing, he could be blocking the exits for some of these accounts to use Twitter as a springboard to uh, bring lots and lots of people uh, quickly to another platform. So, but again, really controversial and a little bit of of insecurity, some might say, by Musk. So the jury's out on that. Not only that, and it gets worse, uh, he suspended several journalists, all kind of classic liberal left-wing journalists, mainstream journalists. And he's citing, as the reason for this is uh, there was a kind of uh, Gang stalking campaign amongst these people uh, to dox him in the location of his private jet and he said his family So it was a family personal safety issue. He's uh, closed the accounts of some of these mainstream Personalities and journalists, but uh, some of them have co- since come back on the platform So again a little bit of instability. So this begs the question here. How long? How long will Elon Musk remain CEO of Twitter And this is an important question. And so a poll. So he's into Vox Populi. So he's issued a poll on Twitter. He did another one last night. And the the question is, should I step down as head of Twitter? I will abide by the results of this poll. And the poll is final here. This was a screenshot taken this morning, but the result is pretty much the same. Note the amount of votes, 13 million, 14 million votes roughly. Uh, so he he said he will abide by the results of this poll. So according to that, he will step down. Now, also, some people suspect possibly this could be a, a kind of honey trap to to see if there's heavy bot activity on Twitter. So to flush out bots by doing a poll like this, they'd be able to check from the analytics on some of these accounts to see if there's any uh, markers for bots or things like that. That said. Uh, it's well known within Silicon Valley that Musk has been conducting a CEO search over the last couple of weeks. So there, there, it's almost certain there's going to be a new CEO. So this could be a legitimate sort of way for him to to exit on the stage, still own it, and probably doing a lot of backseat driving on it. But you know, total different uh, different atmosphere at Twitter, and the company's going to be going in a different direction. Uh, on, on a number of different levels and m- might end up being more powerful uh, and bigger than it is right now, perhaps, if it gets into video in the way that he's wanting to get into video. So, But at least on this free speech side, the free expression side, there's been some positive developments. How long they can hold those and, and keep that those principles intact, uh, like Jack Dorsey was not able to do, um, remains to be seen.
0: Patrick, thank you very much for that comprehensive run through and of course if we consider the power of uh, platforms like Twitter coupled with the change agents that we've demonstrated operating in Ukraine and David Scott's talking about, of course, operating in the Western world, uh, the state has a very powerful agenda and powerful tools uh, at its disposal. Well, if you like what uh, UK Column is doing, we hope very much that you'll join our community and uh, help support what we're doing. Uh, If you feel like buying something, that would be really excellent from the UK Column shop. There are many um, lovely things to buy. Of course, we can't be held responsible for problems with post at the moment. So I know a few people have got upset. Um, but we just have to do the best we can and wait and see what happens with postal strikes. Uh, We do ask our viewers and supporters to uh, put out our material. That's the whole point of making these uh, programmes is to share information and data. So please help us do that. Well, David, let's um, just come back to the world of economics. Um, The political scene is Pretty turbulent um, but it also appears that uh, economies are in great trouble as well at the moment
1: all oh, many things are changing Brian now we have here first off a chart from the Fed from the St Louis Fed um, we've featured many of the uh, charts from this source in recent weeks this one is um, quite striking it shows the um, earnings remittances um, due to the United States Treasury from the Fed uh, over time. Now, a couple of things, just to give you a background. Um, this is the one good thing that the Greenbackers ever did for America. They passed a law which meant that if the Federal Reserve uh, private bank holds um, United States government debt and receives interest payments, they have to give the interest payments back, essentially, to the, to the United States government, less than, less than the operating expenditure. Um, so this has saved the United States uh, government and taxpayer. I mean, trillions of dollars over the years. Um, so what we see here is a, a chart going back to 2010 of the amount of money that the that the Fed gives to the United States Treasury, and this is running at one to two billion dollars weekly. So it's not it's not insubstantial amounts of money. Um, and uh, the United States government, as the as wonderful Rabbi Faber pointed out, could use this money to, you know, bomb people or buy people, lots of things. Um, and this has been consistently payments going from the Fed to the uh, Treasury until, well, until quite recently. And then, wow, what does the chart do? It disappears south. Um, so we're now seeing $14.3 billion dollars. In, of a whole, weekly, right? So this isn't actually money that's going from the United States Treasury to the Fed. They, they don't actually hand over anything, they don't really have anything. What this is, is there's going to be essentially paper notes created in the Fed that says, well, we'll fill this gap in later. So this is a bit of the Fed that's that's no longer backed by anything, anything at all. And this is going to significantly weaken the position of the dollar. So we see this um, problem of of the dollar strength and of the the reliability of the United States government debt as an asset starting to show all around the world. So here we see in the Global Times reporting um, that China and Japan um, are selling US debt. Um, uh, China's holdings have hit a 12 year low uh, Japan is the US's largest creditor, China's the second largest, and the United Kingdom is the third largest. And um, they've all cut their holdings of United States debt in October. So there's lots of debt being sold, and this is going to reduce the price, obviously. Um, and uh, this is going to cause further problems for people like the Fed who hold lots of United States government debt. China's holdings of United States Treasury bonds decreased 20 by $24 billion to $900 billion. Uh, the lowest since June 2010, um, and on it goes. And iMedia is also reporting similar problems with Japan, in this case, uh, is selling treasuries at a record pace. Now, they've been selling treasuries for almost a year now, uh, but the pace seems to be increasing. So this is very interesting. We'll hopefully look at Japan in more detail in another another news. Um, but this is the, the one of the few core assets the Japanese government, which is hugely indebted itself, actually has, and they're now selling this. According to statistics released by the United States Department of the Treasury, capital outflows by foreign investors reached $34 billion in September. Most of the sale of U.S. government bonds ha- uh, happened to be U.S. ally Japan. Um, so th- the value of United States debt and, and the bond market in general is under threat. And all of the banking system is based, is is leveraged off the bond market. So the expectation is that sooner probably rather than later. There'll have to be a pivot. Central bank policy will have to change. Remember, the Bank of England's in a £188 billion hole that's going to be bailed out by the United States taxpayer because of their position on United, on United Kingdom guilts, United Kingdom government bonds. So the whole banking system's looking very fragile. It's all based on bonds. Bonds are needing to be supported by more money printing they're trying to tighten instead to to contain inflation. The whole thing looks extremely unstable. So where do you go when things are unstable? Well, you go to actual money. And here we see it's happening in Egypt. Gold buying uh, mania, uh, the Middle East Eye reports, um, as national currency loses value. Uh, Many want to protect the savings by. you'll You'll enjoy the language here, Brian. It's all about it's all trying to tell people not to do this, by hoarding gold, but this has led to an exponential rise in the price of the metal, making it off-limits for other consumers. You see the, the subtle suggestion that you shouldn't actually buy gold. Um, Middle East, I, I, continues, Egyptians are holding as much gold as they can to protect their savings as the national currency continues to lose value. How long to that comes here, I wonder. Um, moneyed Egyptians, including those with meagre savings, uh, keeps um, keeps uh, as the Egyptian pound is dwarfed in value by foreign currencies. This decline in local value translates into higher prices across the board. So they're, they're seeing inflation, and they're, they're going to a non-inflatable money instead, which is gold. And it's not just uh, Egypt. It's happening also here. We see in Austria, uh, Reuters reporting uh, the Austrian Mint one of the oldest and biggest producers of gold bullion coins, is unable to keep up with demand as people rush to find a safe haven for the money. Uh, Quote, demand for gold has never been as high as this year, says the Mint's chief executive. Um, And he also says um, uh, that at the moment, every gold coin that comes off the coining press has already been sold. Right now we could sell three times as many as we are able to produce, which of course means the price is too low. So uh, we can expect gold to be going up uh, very soon. And uh,
0: when does that take us, David, to the European Union, uh, which has got the next uh, tranche of uh, rules and regulations?
1: Well, against this background of the banking system being based on a bond market, which is collapsing, of of people starting to wise up to this, and and the general coming apart at the seams of everything, the the European Union is carrying on as though none of this was happening, and are busily shutting down their own economy, here through a a personal carbon credit system. Eva Vlar's um, Twitter account is highlighting this, every citizen will have to start paying uh, for their carbon emissions in an effort to cut carbon emissions by 55% by 2030. And uh, going to the actual uh, Active article here, the EU agrees carbon market overhaul. Uh, the European negotiators have reached agreement uh, to reform the EU's emissions trading scheme, the biggest carbon market in the world. And the bloc's flagship climate policy. Uh, The carbon market reforms are a major part of the Green Deal, said Pascal Canfin, French lawmaker, who chairs the Environment Committee. Uh, Thanks to this agreement, um, we've increased our industry's climate objectives by almost 50%. So more and more, they're going to be pressuring industry. They're going to be pressuring um, the supply of energy, which was already in desperate in a desperate situation, and they just, there's no there's no tendency of them to link up any of these fanciful ideas with the reality on the ground. Um, Carfin said the carbon price will be around 100 euros after the reform, up from 80 to 85, so more taxes. Uh, a separate carbon market has also been created for buildings, that means your home, uh, and road transport, that means your car. Uh, The second ETS will start applying in 2027 and will be accompanied by a social climate fund to compensate households for the extra costs this will create. Oh yes, we've heard that one before. We'll pick your pocket, but we'll give it back, honestly. less a few essential uh, operating expenses. And if energy prices are exceptionally high, the new scheme will be delayed by a year. That's big of them. So that's uh, coming to Europe. Fortunately, we've got Brexit. We've got a bit of distance. Whether it will also be rolled out in Britain, well, we'll see but I think I know what I expect.
0: Okay, David, thank you very much for that. Uh, well, let's bring in Mark Anderson, and I'll just comment that uh, in, in our chat box today, people are starting to say, quite rightly, that uh, the political events unfolding are clearly above national governments, and we're seeing global, uh, globalist policy coming in to decide what is gonna happen in nation states and indeed across the world. And uh, Mark, you've been delving into this and the uh, subject you're gonna start us off on, I think is the World Economic Forum and megalopolis cities, if I've pronounced that correctly.
5: Yeah, sounds great, right? Anyway, you thought global cities were a wonderful thing. Well, welcome to megalopolis cities as described by the World Economic Forum. And there's a short video in a moment, I believe, But I wanna recite some of the points because the video doesn't, doesn't have a narrator. It just shows words across the screen with some very dramatic music. But here's some of the points. These cities actually are taking shape. They're not merely being envisioned by the WEF. For example, the Greater Bay Area of China, which includes Hong Kong, is the merger of 11 cities. The cities that comprise these megalopolis areas grow together via urban sprawl. The Greater Bay Area, for the record, is home to 70 million people and represents 11.6% of China's GDP. But the biggest such super city of them all can be found in West Africa. It consists of, get this, nine cities across five countries from the Ivory Coast to Nigeria. There's more I can add here. Uh, The WEF says that 20 years ago, less than half the world population lived in urban areas. Today, approximately 60% live in urban areas. By the year 2100, the 22nd century, the World Economic Forum predicts 85% of the world's population will urbanize. And as soon as 2030, the forum believes 1.2 million square kilometers in new urban areas will be added to the earth. And with that, I think there's a video to view. There's a a screenshot there.
0: Uh, Yes, Uh, we, we we have that video. We've, we've got that, Mark. So uh, when it comes on screen and it plays through, if you'd like to give us a little bit more narration as to what, what we're seeing, let's uh, play it on screen now. Uh, I, w- I was just uh, amazed at uh, the size, the scale that they're talking about.
5: They're forming super cities connected by urban sprawl. The largest megalopolis is in China, as noted, the Greater Bay Area a merger of 11 cities, which is just incredible. Hong Kong, Shenzhen, home to more than 70 million people, the Greater Bay Area of China. As I said, 11.6% of China's GDP in that area. West Africa, the Megalopolis taking shape that could be the biggest of them all. It's almost a thousand kilometers long, nine cities over five countries in the Ivory Coast to Nigeria. It'll become the most densely populated region on the planet. By 2100, it could be home to up to 500 million people. This trend is being driven by the world's growing urban population. There's some of the other stats about more and more people living in urban areas that I recited a moment ago. By 2100, 85% expected to live in urban areas in the world. 1.2 million square kilometers of new urban areas by 2030. That's coming up. Would you like to live in a megalopolis? The video concludes with that question. World, uh, World Economic Forum.
0: But, uh, so uh, sorry, I Mark, the... sorry, Mark, Go I'll respond to the. Sorry, Mark, I'll respond to that. That of course, that's a World Economic Forum question, which means they're not interested in your answer. You're going to get what they want to deliver. But perhaps I'm being especially cynical today.
5: No, no, I don't think so. It, it's, uh, they're planting the seed there. Uh, I would just note before we go to the next items that um, if you're having uh, several cities uh, transcending na- national borders and you're through urban sprawl and through connectivity, you're just connecting one city with another, irrespective of, of national boundaries, it, it shows structurally what they're up to. Uh, the governance would appear to be localized, but it's actually globalized at the local level. Grassroots globalism, globalism, sometimes known as glocalism. I've used that term on UK column before, glocalism. Grassroots globalism, it appears to be local, but it's really global at the local level. And they just uh, superimpose these cities over national boundaries, like the nation state really bears no relationship or relevance to anything. So the very structure of these things in the megalopolis blueprint uh, is another indication of what the global cities movement is all about. Now, we're getting into uh, more details of that movement. And one of the main outlets of uh, global cities continues to be, as it has been for about eight years, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, their version of the CFR, which is 100 years old this year, 2022. And participatory governance and local care programs is just one example of many of what I'm talking about. And it's a form of branding, it appears. Uh, these appear to be exercises for making global cities, trademark TM, uh, and make them more central to governance. And uh, what this is about, the participa- participatory governance, that's an important term in and of itself. Uh, there's uh, two case studies, moving on, from Bogota and Chicago that demonstrate how cities have embraced this participatory governance in, in terms of its frameworks in their COVID-19 pandemic responses among the many urban crises or crises precipitated by COVID-19 the pandemic was foremost a crisis of care they say urban dwellers faced lockdowns isolation illness changes in employment and schooling and a significant increase in demand for care and unpaid care work among many other challenges. As the pandemic unfolded, cities were thrust to the forefront of emergency response programs. At a time when governments enacted curfews, travel restrictions, and lockdowns to check viral transmission, not to mention to check our civil liberties and ensure people's safety, they also placed burdens of care on historically marginalized communities. And uh, I could go on a little bit. Against this background of increased uncertainty, many cities embraced participatory governance. There it is again. That is community involvement in decision-making from public policy development to service planning and delivery to respond to the challenges posed by the pandemic. These programs vary greatly in their scale, operations, goals, and extremes. Uh, This report examines these two case studies, as noted, the care system in Bogota Columbia and the Rogers Park Community Response Team in Chicago to demonstrate how global cities at the metropolitan and neighborhood scale embrace this participatory governance framework responding to COVID. And I make an observation here, and we'll get on to what we're seeing on the screen. Is this participatory governance born in cities being used to market the global cities concept? Does it transcend COVID 19 in order to serve as a more general global cities friendly governance model? And as we're seeing here, I believe the answer, at least tentatively, is yes. And I'll quote, although both cases are situated within the context of COVID-19, that's Bogota and Chicago, their policy implications and impact on the community extend beyond the pandemic. And that's this report, Participatory Governance in Local Care Programs by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. So at least there's some preliminary indication that they're developing a governance model to address specific issues within the larger global cities context that I'm describing. And here's another example, care blocks, proposed participatory governance, 15-minute cities. That theme is now emerging here, and we've talked about that before. Pivotal to the implementation of the care system are Bogota's care blocks, Uh, The city has repurposed existing public infrastructure such as schools, healthcare centers, and sports facilities to set up care blocks, which are available within a 15 to 20-minute walk for dwellers. This ties in well with the 15-minute cities thing we've talked about. Care blocks are designed to help women care for themselves and thus provide them opportunities for relaxation, personal development, and participation in politics and civic life continuing education services include business classes, courses toward primary and secondary school diplomas, yoga, or learning how to ride a bicycle. And there's another indication, bicycle riding and learning how to ride one, that uh, the 15 minute city transportation hub would include very little in terms of automobiles and things of that nature. And as we've described on UK column before, the big problem with fifteen minute cities, although there's lots of amenities and you know conveniences and all that, and maybe some of us would not object to all of that. The big problem is it appears they want to control your movements as these um, concepts develop they want people to live in their city sector and without a good excuse uh, there's unless they have a good excuse uh, they're supposed to stay in their their assigned city sector and only travel and live within that sector and get special permission to use extra carbon credits, let's say, to travel outside that assigned city uh, sector, uh, excuse me, sector. And so uh, lots to unpack here. Moving on for another Chicago Global Affairs Council um, uh, take on this, another program. We see the Transatlantic Learning Exchange, Economic Renewal and Democracy. See, so many, many things plug into the Global Cities Hub, and this is another example. Uh, moving on here, the Transatlantic Learning Exchange, organized and hosted by the European Union Committee of the Regions and the European Commission's Directorate General for Regional and Urban Policy, saw a discussion of the vital importance of nurturing economic renewal in industrial heartland regions in order to blunt the appeal of extremist politics. And I emphasize that. That's my emphasis, not theirs. The event attracted the participation of more than 500 leaders and economic change practitioners, boy, these terminologies here, representing North American and European democracies and provided new guidance for leaders on how to spur and support industrial heartland economic transformation. The event featured U.S. representatives, I don't need to name them, as well as Secretary of State Mark speech or speech of the German state of North Rhine, Westphalia, who joined mayors, city mayors, very important in the global cities movement from Spain, Poland, France, the United States, and Canada, all illuminated the link between vibrant local uh, economies, good jobs and employment opportunities and a politics of modernization, not polarization. And, uh, so I, I made a little note to myself here, how can how can we achieve economic progress if those bloody populist extremists keep getting in the way? And that's what they keep getting at here as I go along. Uh, moving on to the next item here, transforming industrial regions of North America and Europe, opportunity and imperative. And I've got a couple items that tie the last slide to this slide here. Transatlantic Learning Exchange Report that we just covered before that most recent slide. At this most recent dialogue, participants traded ideas around innovative strategies, how to create new high quality jobs by steering industrial revitalization towards environmental sustainability, excuse me, tactics for empowering local communities in decision-making, fostering community and regional cohesion and collaboration. Boy, more of this globalese language here and ultimately how to best blunt the appeal of anti-democratic politics. It keeps heating up toward that item. And I added here, an offshoot report came from the Transforming Industrial Regions of North America and Europe Symposium, an event which, accordingly, included strategies to rebuild economies and stem anti-democratic populism. And it really gets into the nitty-gritty on this um, uh, current item. The reason we care so much about these regions is fundamentally because we are very worried about politics, the organizers of these programs say. We are worried that across the developed world, there are seismic changes happening in the kinds of politicians that are voted for, the kinds of parties that are voted for, and what that means for everything from transatlantic trade policy, tariffs, the principles of globalization, and free markets right down to national immigration policy, interesting that that's included, and the degree to which we're able to take action on climate change, as well as broad economic policy. Uh, I probably don't have to go through all of this, but I'll, I'll note the next line here, the next quote. These are direct quotes from them. These are not my words, these are their words. As we have observed in recent years, such polarized politics at home threatens the health of transatlantic cooperation and our democracies themselves. And um, one thing that uh, I included in here, I'm not sure it's uh, included on the uh, screen here, is residents' economic anxieties, concerns about losing their place in a changing world, and perceptions of community decline can increase the appeal of populist messages of nativism, nationalism, isolationism, and economic nostalgia. Now, I'll just pause there and note that they name all these isms, the people that are involved in these different aspects of the global cities movement and the related projects. They named all these isms, nationalism, nativism, and so on, that they find so disagreeable. And they characterize them all as reactionary anger, that they're just people that don't like globalism and they're, they're getting out of their heads and they're just lashing out and, uh, you might say, retaliating against globalization. But in fact, populism is a distinct philosophy. It's a distinct worldview. And that's one thing they don't want people to think about. People don't always agree with populist tendencies or or populist outlooks, but they involve, for example, um, the idea that it's not so much that the business sector or the economy is over regulated. What it really is, is, it's regulated in areas where it shouldn't be, and it's not regulated in areas where it ought to be what I call misregulation. And populism also calls for a certain degree of antitrust laws and um, monetary control by by the government rather than the Federal Reserve and private banks. These are some of the uh, um, uh, talking points of, of populism and that philosophy over the decades. There are more liberal ver- versions of populism and more conservative versions of populism, but they agree on things like Uh, non-GMO foods, uh, uh, being against corporate farming, being more for the uh, family farm. There's lots of areas of agreement where citizens can find common ground in real populism. So that's why the globalists always want to portray populism as something that's just purely anger and reactionary. And that's probably sufficient for uh, explaining that part of it. And uh, just to wind up, Brian, before I move on, do you have any comments, uh, Brian, anything to add?
0: Uh, Well, my my immediate comment is that there's so much that you've spoken about, Mark, that we could have a, a long discussion on, which would be necessary and I think really interesting. We're going to have to have another session on this, but you've given a great overview of the globalist agenda coming. Just finish off very quickly, very quickly here, please, with the fact that having gone worldwide, you're now going to come back to the very... European theatre that David Scott was talking about a few moments ago.
5: Yeah, I'll note that I'm, I'm working on at least one article on these developments and getting those posted on the UK column website will help break this down. But this again, these are the projects that fit into the hub of the global cities movement, the megalopolis being another really astounding view of how global cities would grow together, not just operate in the way we're told, but actually grow together, which is quite unsettling. And what we're looking at here is industrial transition and democracy. Um, uh, I'll move on to just show the, the, the next item that follows this. And the reason I, I show this is that um, it, uh, it shows kind of how they're doing this in terms of uh, uh, who gathers and how they go about uh, working out policy uh, within the Global Cities framework. Uh, this just shows that mayors, congressmen, and think tank wonks are collaborating. Uh, a presentation of insights from the Transatlantic Symposium on Transforming Industrial Regions and its November 21, 2022 report. It involved Jeffrey Anderson of Georgetown, uh, John uh, John Austin, director of the Michigan Economic Center and non-resident senior fellow with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the Brookings Institution. Then there was a political roundtable discussion on industrial change and democracy. You're looking at the mayor of uh, St. Omer, France, uh, a, a mayor from Poland, the mayor of Athens, Ohio, a mayor of Sarnia, Ontario, which is right across from Michigan, uh, right across from Flint, Michigan, uh, a congresswoman from, uh, apparently a congresswoman, well, a Democrat from California, uh, Maureen Donker, the mayor of Midland, Michigan, a heavily industrialized um, uh, um, uh, city there in Michigan, and uh uh, the, uh, the Tony Blair item bears no relation to what I'm talking about here, but um, and then there's uh, the European Commission involved, and so that's that's just to show the the kind of people that are involved here, uh, mayors and uh, think tank wonks, and it's it's shows the structure and the kind of people that are involved in uh, talking out and working out these policies that I'm describing, Brian. So. The, Altogether, this this, uh, provides a larger and more detailed snapshot of what the Global Cities Movement is and where it's headed.
0: Okay. Over to you. Well, thank you very, thank you very much for that. Uh, I couldn't resist uh, stealing your Tony Blair slide and let's just pop it up on screen very briefly because of course it's men like Tony Blair in the background manipulating what's happening. And here we've got the quote equipping leaders and making change but we'll come on to uh, Tony another day. We must end there. We've uh, run, run on today in our UK Column News. I'm going to thank all of you for joining me. Uh, David Scott, Patrick Henningson, your good self, Mark Anderson. We will have time for a short extra time today. So uh, if you are a signed up member with UK Column, please come and join us. And we'll cover a little bit of the material that we haven't been able to cover in the mainstream news. Big thank you as always to everybody that supports UK Column, uh, however you're doing that. And just to remind you all that we can't do what we're doing without your help and support. So thank you all very much, wherever you are in the world. We'll end there. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye.